You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we will be speaking on the autumn feasts of Israel. Now, most people are familiar in somewhat with the feasts of Israel. We are much more familiar with what we call the spring feasts. So that would be Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost. They're the ones that we normally would uh, pay more attention to in the church. And then as the year goes by, you have the long summer. And then in autumn, you have the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if you know, one another reason I wanted to teach on this is because the Feast of Tabernacles has just finished in Israel this Thursday. It's a seven-day feast. They've been going through what they call the high holiday season. It's been a difficult time for them this year because they've had a, a very strict lockdown throughout the whole of their high holy days and the Feast of Tabernacles. So as it's the season, it's a good time for us to get into this. And I would say, every time I study the feasts, I just get more amazed at the depth of Scripture. Uh, Often we're sort of woefully unfamiliar with the feasts of Israel, because it can be confusing, because a lot of the tradition that you see today around the world is obviously post-biblical. It's built up over uh, thousands of years, really. But we want to try and strip that back and get back to the biblical teaching on the feasts. And I'd say it's a shame that we don't know them more, Obviously, I'm not suggesting that we celebrate them in a sort of legalistic sense, but I do think we should pay more attention to them. They are God's, it is God's timetable. And as you, and I'm hoping I can show you some of these themes today, as you get more into the feasts and you just realize how much of the New Testament uses the language of the feasts, builds theological points from the feasts of Israel, uh, it's just quite amazing. They are God's calendar. And I would say it's not an overstatement to say that the whole of human existence is contained within the cycle of these feasts. And I would say also that right now we are prophetically in between the spring feasts and the autumn feasts. The spring feasts were really the first coming of Christ. Then you have the long summer. This would be the age of grace, the church. And then the end, the full feast that we're going to look at today, deal with the second coming of Christ. I'll dip into that and that will become more clear as we go through. So let's turn to Leviticus chapter 23, and we're going to read quite a few texts this morning, and we'll go through Leviticus chapter 23, just the first uh, couple of verses to start with. The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. Now, the word in Hebrew for, that is translated there, holy convocations, it's a very interesting word. It has connotations or the idea of what we would say is a rehearsal. And this just gives us a very unique way to think about the feasts. Because what is a rehearsal? It is really a practice for the big finish, isn't it? A practice for the live event. And this is a very nice way to think about the feasts. You see, the feasts commemorate a past event in the life of Israel, see that all through the Bible. They are also fulfilled in one sense in the life of our Lord Jesus. We'll show you that as we go through. But in another sense, they serve as a prophetic rehearsal of the entire scope of God's redemptive plan. We see the Apostle Paul making this same point. Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink in respect to a festival, a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These teachers are a shadow, the substance belongs to Christ. They are a rehearsal of what is to come. 
And they, it is just amazing when you study them in this light. And for this reason alone, I would say they demand the church's attention. Now, like I said, we're more familiar with the spring feasts and the way that they are fulfilled. Passover, we have Jesus as the Passover lamb. Most of us understand that imagery. The Feast of Unleavened Bread speaks of the sinless body of Messiah. We, we take communion, don't we? We break the wafer. That's unleavened bread. The Feast of First Fruits, first fruits of the resurrection. That's what we find in the New Testament. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the first fruits. And then the Feast of Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit. We find that in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Because of these things, we're much more familiar with them. They are the spring feasts. But the full feasts, we're not quite so familiar with them. And the lessons they teach are just fascinating. And there's a natural progression of thought as you go through the feast. And I want to outline that for you now because it's brilliant for us. The Feast of Trumpets, this is repentance. The Feast of Atonement comes after that, that is redemption. And the Feast of Tabernacles, that is rejoicing. And this is a pattern of the Christian life. You see, to be, you have to have repentance first, then you are redeemed, and you can't rejoice until you're redeemed. And this is the pattern that we see fulfilled in these feasts. Now, the Feast of Trumpets, and when I say trumpets, I'm talking about the shofar. This is, you can see in the picture, it's a ram's horn. There, there were silver temple trumpets used, but uh, the focus is on the ram's horn at this time of year. So let me read just uh, a couple of verses that outline the Feast of Trumpets. Leviticus 23, verses 24 and 25. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. Now this is, it's literally the day of blowing is how it's actually translated, or the, the word can also mean a shout, a loud noise. The, the point is it, it's a loud time of year. And just to clear up a, something that you may see today, in Israel today they refer to this as Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. That's what you've seen them celebrating. This is a later association. They have a number of different calendars. They have a religious calendar and a civil calendar, and there's sort of been a bit of mixing there. After the temple was destroyed, they started to associate the New Year with the Feast of Trumpets, and it just gets referred to as Rosh Hashanah around the world today. But when we hear that, what we're talking about is the Feast of Trumpets. So just stick with that for now. We're talking about the Feast of Trumpets. And it's a very mysterious feast. Look at the command. The command is to rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets, never specified what the reminder's for, just a reminder, and then also a sacrifice. And that's it. And this is unusual. Now, to understand this, you have to look at the reminder, because it's a reminder by the blowing of trumpets. So this says we have to know a little bit about what trumpets were for and their role within the Scriptures. And this is just one of those areas that's so uh, understudied in the Bible, it's fascinating to get into. First of all, let me just ask, where is the first time that we hear of a ram's horn in Scripture. The first time something's mentioned is always very pivotal. Let me read to you Genesis chapter 22. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up a burnt offering in the place of his son. So the first time we have a ram's horned mention, it teaches us of the substitutionary sacrifice made right back in the book of Genesis. This is a very famous event in Jewish tradition, and it is a, a piece of scripture that is read at uh, the Feast of Trumpets. The ram's horn speaks to us immediately 
of God's plan of redemption in substituting that ram for his son Isaac at that time. That's our first instance. Now, the first time that we actually hear the shofar is later in the book of Exodus. And the shofar is used to really say to people, pay attention. If you've ever heard someone blow a shofar, I do have a shofar. My wife told me I should bring it, but I can't do it properly. It's a really hard technique and a short, sharp series of bursts that you have to do. But when you hear it done, you can go online, you can hear it. It's, it's loud, and it really does get your attention. It sort of pierces right, right into your soul when you hear it done properly. It gets your attention. Now, this is what we find on the mountain. Remember Mount Sinai? I'll read to you just a small bit of scripture where this happened. Exodus 19, verse 18 and 19. It says, Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. This is really the nation-defining moment for Israel. As they've come out of Egypt and they're now being given the Torah, we find this God descending with the sound of a trumpet. This is one of the things that they are being reminded of. The trumpet was also used throughout the Bible to warn of impending danger. When you read about the watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem, they're standing there looking for armies coming to attack them, and they have trumpets. If they see something, they blow the trumpet. The sound signals to the camp, get ready, something's coming. It was a fearful sound that would fill you with fear. Enemies are at the gates sort of thing. It was also used in a time of war to assemble the male armies. They were, if they, again, once the watchmen blow the trumpets, the commanders would blow the trumpets, and then the women and children would say goodbye to their men. They may never see them again, and the men would go out to fight. So this was, a, you can imagine the emotion that sort of stirred uh, in the camp when they heard these signals, these trumpets. Now, that was one side of it. The trumpet was also used on occasions to signify a joyous event. It was used at a time of celebration. It was always blown at the start of a jubilee year when debts were released. It was blown to signify a time of repentance, a time of celebration of festivals. And it was also blown to inaugurate the new king of Israel. And the new king of Israel, when they inaugurated a king, it was an act of sacrifice and worship and people were praising and playing musical instruments. Uh, it was a wonderful time. All of these events are associated with the shofar. And I've given you this brief overview just to try and show you just how integral the ram's horn is to the life of Israel. It's something that's very foreign to us, but in the scriptures we find it all over the place. Not only in stuff from the past, the ram's horn has a very specific place in the future too. We will hear that ram's horn at some point. Isaiah 27, verse 13. This is a text that speaks about the future restoration of Israel in the future time. It says, It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain of Jerusalem. The prophet Zechariah predicts that the Lord himself will blow the shofar when he delivers his people. Then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and he will march in the storm winds of the south. So we have the prophets, we have... We also have Jesus. Let's read a text from Jesus here, speaking of the trumpet. Very famous text from the Olivet Discourse. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, so this is Jesus is 
talk on the end times. He says, The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds of the earth. The trumpet, again, it's it's God's instrument. Not only Jesus, we find the Apostle Paul doing this too. Remember, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Remember that the word can be translated, the feast of trumpets, the feast of blowing, the feast of shouting. With a shout, the voice of an archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. All of these things are associated and connected to the trumpet, the restoration of Israel, the resurrection of the dead, gathering the armies together, the heralding of a new king, an approaching king. All these things are the trumpet. It's integral to God's theme. So this is where we are, the beginning of the autumn feasts. The trumpet is blown. It gets the attention of Israel. And really, I would say, firstly, it points them back to Abraham's, to to the ram caught in the thicket, the substitutionary sacrifice. It points them back to their covenant identity at Sinai, where the nation was formed, where they took on the obligations of the Mosaic law, where they were given that special elect status as the children of God. And it also tells them to prepare for what is coming. So the theme is pay attention. That's what the trumpet means. And I believe when it says, blow the trumpet for a reminder, this is what it's talking about. And now, again, the term pay attention, just saying that in Hebrew, it's a very interesting term. How that would literally be translated if we did it word for word is put your hearts. Again, this is a lovely expression to think about what it actually means to pay attention to God. It's a conscious decision to engage our hearts, focus our thoughts upon his plan, his purposes, his history, and his future. And at a time like this, when focusing on the world's not particularly fun, this is what I believe we need to do. We focus on his purposes in the world. When the Israelites heard the shofar, it was a sudden, interrupting reminder to break from the routine, from the monotony, from whatever you're doing in life, and turn and focus your attention upon the king. That's what the trumpet signifies. It's a time to get right with him if you're not walking with him. The Feast of Trumpets did this. And at this time, you have trumpets, and then after that, remember I said you had the Day of Atonement. That is the most serious feast in Israel, the Day of Atonement. And there were 10 days in between the end of uh, the Feast of Trumpets and the beginning of the Day of Atonement. Now, they call these the 10 days of awe or the 10 days of repentance. And it was a time, and it still is today, you'll find this is the most solemn time of the year in Israel, except for maybe Holocaust Memorial Day. But the Yom Kippur is uh, Day of Atonement. You have these 10 days where people search their souls. It's the time to confess. It's a time to make right with your neighbor. If you've got anything against anyone, this is the time you make it right. You repent of your sins. You examine your soul as you approach the Day of Atonement. And this, you'll see this happening in Israel. Everything goes silent. The roads are empty in that sense. The kids go out and ride their bikes on the road. It's, it's, a, it's an unusual time, and it's an unusual holiday. Now, there's a lot of tradition that surrounds these holidays. I, don't want to, I could spend hours sharing with you the traditions that have built up, but one tradition, just so you understand a little bit of the context that you see today, in Jewish tradition, they believe that at the Day of Atonement, or at the Feast of Trumpets, rather, The Lord opens the books, the book of life and the book of the dead. And the righteous are written in the book of life. Those who are evil are written in the book of dead. But they also say that the vast majority of people are not written in any book. And you have 10 days to get yourself right before your fate is sealed on the Day of Atonement. 
Now, of course, we understand as, as believers that's not, that's not how we would understand it in its full fulfillment, but it's a very interesting tradition and it explains a lot. And when I say Book of Life and Book of Dead and the Day of Atonement, this was not like we would immediately think a once and for all, you're saved, you go to heaven. This is a yearly thing. This is really say so you would have life for the next year because then the next day of atonement comes and you have to do the same thing again because surely you've committed sins in the previous year. So sort of we need to get out of our maybe Christian way of thinking about the eternal state in here. This is a much more practical year-by-year concept because these feasts are a yearly calendar. Now, in light of this, again, I would say that this is just a, a fabulous time for the church and Messianic believers in Israel to be interceding for the nation of Israel because we need them to know the Messiah. We need them to understand that Jesus has made atonement for them. So as their hearts are focusing on repentance, this is a time that we can be interceding for them. But that is the day of trumpets. That is what the reminder is for. And that brings us to the day of atonement. This is the, holiest, the highest holy day in Israel. It's a very solemn, reflective period. And as we study this text, it, it is, you can feel the holiness of God just sort of emanating from the scripture that we read about it. And it's one of those moments where, if I could, I would say it's, we almost need to you know, take our shoes off because we're standing on holy ground. So just sort of approach it with that attitude. It is absolutely fascinating. Now, in this feast, we're going to see Jesus as high priest. And that is one of his greatest roles for us. Jesus as high priest. I will demonstrate that. We also see prophetic insight into the future restoration of Israel and also the final judgment of the world. All of those themes are wrapped up with the Day of Atonement. Now the day, the word literally means the Day of Coverings. The Day of Coverings, because your sins are covered for another year at that time. That's how they understood it. The central focus of this holiday is the holiness of God. That, that is really what it is. And the central theme of the book of Leviticus, where these directions are found, we've already read from it, is holiness of God. And as I think about that, I often wonder, because let's be honest, Leviticus is probably our least read book in some respects. It's, not, it's, no, it's, no, it's no one's go-to book, really, is it, if we're being honest? But the book of Leviticus in the Jewish tradition is the most important book in the Torah in many ways because it deals with the holiness of God. And I think, like, I would like to say, maybe there's a connection there with the way that we lower God and treat God sometimes in a sort of evangelical world in the West is kind of parallels our view of the book of Leviticus, old, not really too much in there for us, maybe some, a few things. I think we need to sort of try and recapture the central facet of God's holiness as we live out. And the way we do that, why we don't do it, because it's very uncomfortable. Because when you're approached with holiness, your sin is magnified. You understand that principle. We will, we will, hopefully we can understand that. And that is exactly what God is dealing with here in the Day of Atonement. That is exactly how it should be. But he doesn't just leave us there condemned he goes on, and we see this. Now, I would say that it's actually an act of grace. You see, we, yes, we have grace in the Old Testament too, and the whole sacrificial system was an act of God's grace in one respect, because he knows we can't live up to his standard of holiness, so he gave the Israelites the sacrificial system, which would ultimately point to the future, but in the moment for them, this is how they lived in relationship with God. The whole festival focuses on making atonement for the sins of the nation, paying, covering for the sins of the nation. And it was on this day where the high priest, the lead priest in Israel, remember they, they, they were based around the Levites and the priests, it was on this day that he got to go into the Holy of Holies. 
that sacred place that no one else would ever go in except the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And he would bring blood in there with him, he would bring incense in there with him, and he would sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant. This was a fearful day in the life of the high priest. Because if you go in there wrong, you're dead because of God's holiness. This is, this is the point. This was a fearful day. They were elaborate tests and rituals to make sure that the high priest was prepared to go in to the Holy of Holies. And it's very interesting. Around the time of Jesus, when the high priest's office was often sold for the highest bidder to the Romans, it was on this day where these corrupt priests would suddenly want the priest to direct them to make sure that they did this properly. Because if they got it wrong, it was pretty serious. So let's read, uh, let's go, we have a whole chapter in Leviticus about this sacrifice. Leviticus 16, we're going to read a little bit of text here because I want you to understand the flavour of it. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. When they had approached the presence of the Lord and died, the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil. Before the mercy seat which is on the ark or he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the high place with this, a bull for a sin offering, a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarment shall be next to his body and he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water he put the, and he shall put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering which is for himself that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, the other for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot of the Lord fell and make a sin offering, but the goat on which the Lord for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Now it's easy to read past a lot of the details here and think what is going on. Notice how it starts. He starts by reminding them of the death of Aaron's two sons. Do you remember the story of Aaron's two sons? They went into the temple and they offered strange fire on the altar to the Lord. They did it in a cavalier manner. They did not listen to the way God had specified that he was to be worshipped. And they went into his presence and they did it wrong and they were burnt and they were died immediately. I think it's no coincidence that as we're talking about going into the Holy of Holies, the author here, Moses here, reminds them, just remember what happens. This is, the, this is how I want you to just get a flavour of how serious and what the feeling would have been like on the Day of Atonement in Israel as the nation was watching the high priest go into the Holy of Holies. Now, we can learn lessons from the story of uh, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons. We do not make up religion to our own preferences. This is a big problem because we live in a culture often that teaches us that we can sort of make our own way through this world, pick and choose our own parts. We meet so many people today in the church are, are what we call quasi-Christians. That is, they kind of claim an affinity to the Christian worldview or religion. They may involve themselves in the external trappings of Christianity, but if you push a little deeper, they do not really follow Jesus and they do not respect the word of the Lord. Now, of course, God's grace is extended as much as it could be to any person. But the point I'm making is we need to take the word of the Lord seriously. And if you remember R.C. Sproul, his ministry, Ligonier Ministry, they, they do a yearly thing which is called the state of theology in the church where they do like surveys. I mean, it's American-based, but it translates fairly well. The, the most recent one that they did came up with the figures that 30% of evangelicals 
reject the deity of Jesus Christ. You think about the number of people who identify as evangelical Christians, 30%. That's a pretty big number. And that means 30% of them are not actually Christian. They are quasi-Christians. You see what I mean? 46% of the survey of evangelicals believe that people are basically good. And therefore, that sort of goes along with that first statistic. 46%, that's almost half. If they believe people are basically good, they believe that by being good, you will earn God's favour, pretty much. You are, if, you're not, if you're not broken and in need of a saviour, you don't need a saviour. Therefore, I would say they are probably not at the point of repentance and they are not Christians. So don't really be fooled by not, when people give you numbers of how many people are Christians. These things are a nonsense. We need to learn the lesson of Nadab and Abihu. We take what the Lord says seriously. It's his way and there's no other way. And Jesus confirms this message for us. So back to the high priest. Aaron was the high priest. He was to enter the holy place. He would peer behind the veil in there you had the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat and those massive angel cherubim carved on top of it. And it says the Lord would appear in a glory cloud. What that was like, we just can only imagine. It's described as this sort of heavy presence. You can't, the thickness of the cloud, it must have been quite fearful. And you're given some other details. He has to change out of his priestly robes, put on special holy garments, wash himself, offer a number of sacrifices. There's a bull and then there's these two goats. Let me just draw some observations from reading this text. The whole day is about the high priest. That's the point I want to emphasize the most. Curiously so, in most of the other festivals, there's always something for the people to do. They always have to bring a sacrifice or do something, but not on the Day of Atonement. It's just the high priest. He is the key player. He is the only player. In fact, there are 81 verbs doing action words in this chapter, Leviticus 16, that are used to describe the high priest's work of atonement. There are only four verbs, things that the people should do, and all of those are responses to the Day of Atonement. They're nothing to do with actually taking part in the Day of Atonement. Now, why do I emphasize this? Because I think the scripture emphasizes it here. The point is, there is absolutely nothing that we can do to atone for our sins. Atonement is received by faith in the finished work of the high priest. It's all on him in this day. And this points us to the finished work of the Savior when he assumed the role of high priest. The book of Hebrews, Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. Have the theme of the Day of Atonement in your head now. The book of Hebrews is all about, the, well, not all, but a huge background to it is the Day of Atonement. It says, when Christ appeared as a high priest, good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, those who have been defiled, those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works. You see that you can, can you see the festal language of the Day of Atonement behind the teaching here? That's really what it's all about. And this is why I believe it's so important for Christians to understand this. That's the first observation. It's all about the high priest. He is the one who does atonement. It's his initiative, not ours. And that is the lesson of the Day of Atonement. But let me highlight something else for you. You're given this instruction that he is to change out of his clothes. Now, the high priest's garments were like these. They were beautiful. 
embroidered, they had bells on them, there was gold, they had this magnificent breastplate with all these different gems on it representing the tribes of Israel, chains going over his shoulders and the massive turban. That was how the high priest looked, to make him stand out above all the other priests because he is the great high priest. But on this day, he's given a very unusual instruction. He is to remove all of those glorious garments that he has on and put on a plain white linen garment. And that is just the garment of all the other priests. He became like every other priest at this moment. And for me, this just stuck out to me because he does that and then he goes in and he offers the blood sacrifice. What other high priest do we know who laid aside his glory and became like one of us to offer atonement? This is a picture of Jesus. What a beautiful picture we have of Jesus here, who is the great high priest. And it doesn't say in the book of Philippians that he laid aside his heavenly glory, we could say, his splendor that he had, and he put on human flesh, became just like one of us, and it was in that body that he then went and offered himself as sacrifice. This is what the high priest is doing here. He removed those glorious robes, he put on the white linen garments, and then he entered the Holy of Holies with the blood's sacrifice. Again, it's all about the high priest on this holiday. Except for these two goats. What do we make of these two goats? This is a very unusual. You see in the picture there, you can see the high priest in the middle with white linen. That's kind of what we assume it would have looked like. These two goats, they were taken and they were standing before the tent of meeting. And remember, this is done in front of the whole nation that were watching at this time. They would cast lots. One would come, you know, we would say flip a coin. But one, one would be for the Lord, one goat, and one goat would be the scapegoat. One goat was killed, and the high priest would take the blood and he'd put it on the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies. And there's, again, there's another fascinating thing about this as I was studying this. It's a way that the rabbis insist that the way that this blood sacrifice was sprinkled upon the mercy seat. Okay, no, there's nothing left to chance here. And it's very hard to track down where this tradition came from, but it is in, sort of embedded in Jewish tradition. You see, unlike any other sacrifice, that the sprinkling of blood was just done at the behest of the high priest. <coughs> Excuse me. On this most holy day of the year, where there is this one chance to enter the Holy of Holies, the rabbis agreed that the priest's motion should be done as if they were whipping someone. Let me show you this. This is from the Babylonian Talmud, the Jewish, Jewish writings. It says, Have we not learnt? He sprinkled thereof once upwards and seven times downwards. That was done kimas leaf. That's like the movement of a swinging of a whip. What does kimas leaf mean? Rabbi Judah showed, he showed it as he was teaching this by imitating the whipping of a lash. And again, I just find that absolutely fascinating that you have this great high priest who's removed his holy garments, he's, he's sacrificed this goat, and he has to go in behind the veil to the mercy seat, and then he must sprinkle the blood in the manner of whipping someone. You see, when we think and we relate that to our great high priest, what does it tell us? We know he was scourged by that Roman rip. By his stripes, it says we are healed in the book of Isaiah. Even this points us towards the act of the great high priest on on that fateful day. You see, everything points towards him at this time. So we have that done first. The first goat is gone. And then we have this second goat. All eyes now are on this second goat. And let's just read what happens to this second goat. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat, and then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it 
all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to their sins. And he shall lay on them, lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. And this, again, just very unusual but absolutely fascinating. Look what it says. The goat is said to actually bear the iniquities of a nation. The goat is said to bear the iniquities of a nation. In that sense, it actually came to embody sin, the sin of that nation. And when that was done, this object was now despised, interestingly enough. The goat was despised, and as it was led away, it was led through the crowds who would jeer and throw things at it as it was led away into the wilderness. Now, I hope I don't even need to really make the application. He was despised and rejected of men. This is Jesus Christ, again, pointing to us here. What does it say in 1 Peter? It says, while he was being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept on entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body, just as the goat bore the sins of the nation of Israel. And then it says, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then what does it say? For by his wounds you were healed. Think back to that sprinkling of blood and the lashing. You see how deep these are, how just amazing the scriptures are when we look at it through this light. Now notice, again, something else. The two goats were not considered separate offerings. It's easy to think about that. One, two, two goats. It says in verse 5, look, the two male goats for a sin offering. This was considered a singular offering. The slaughtered goat shows the blood sacrifice that God used to make atonement to satisfy the wrath of God. And the live goat was sent away, illustrated that sins had actually been removed, atoned for and removed. You have these two things going on. And Jesus Christ fulfilled both of these elements. Now, where do we find this so clearly in Scripture? Go right back to the ministry of John the Baptist, John, John 1, 29. When, what does he say? He's standing in the water baptizing people, isn't he? Jesus comes down the hill and he turns and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And then he says, Who takes away the sins of the world. In that statement, John the Baptist is combining the imagery of the Passover and the Day of Atonement. He is looking at Jesus Christ and he is saying, This is the fulfillment of the Pascal sacrifice and the redemption, the freedom we have from slavery to sin. But he is also the scapegoat, the one that actually removes our sins as far as the East is from the West. Just one statement. That is the background to John the Baptist's statement there. That is what he's referring to. It was the Day of Atonement where sins were removed, signified by this amazing ceremony with the second lamb. Now, one more fascinating thing I'll share with you about this day. And it's, again, it's a Jewish tradition, but it's absolutely fascinating. The Mishnah, so that is the oral law in, in Jewish uh, teaching. We call it the Talmud. The Talmud actually contains the Mishnah. It gets a bit complicated. but So it's a, it's a tradition that took place. So during this ceremony, and this would have been happening during the time of Jesus, they would tie a red ribbon, a red sash, around the horns of the goat, and they would take part of that sash, and they would tie it to the temple, the doors of the temple. And then as the goat is led off into the wilderness, uh, they actually led it to a cliff and they pushed it over the cliff. And as the goat lay dying, as the life left that body, the sash on the temple doors would turn white. 
And they believed that this was in fulfilment of Isaiah 118, where it says, though your your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as wool. You see, it signified to them that God had accepted the sacrifice and their sins were forgiven. Now, we may argue there's no way to prove that this happened, but it's, it's a very unusual tradition to have recorded in their literature. But the interesting thing about it is that the Mishnah also records that for 40 years before the destruction of the temple, destruction of the temple happened in 70 AD, for 40 years before that, the sash on the temple never turned white, which meant that God did not accept that sacrifice. So from the time that Jesus was sacrificed in in Jerusalem to the time of the destruction of the temple, this ceremony was not accepted. You know, that is just... You read Jewish literature, they just don't want to make that connection, of course, but that is the connection that we have here. It's just obviously staring us in the face. There were a number of other unusual things that happened. The temple doors would always fly open. The light of the candelabra would go out. There's all these different things. And because of that, a lot of people knew that the destruction of the temple was coming. Something had happened monumentally that changed the entire fabric of the nation of Israel. We know what it was. The high priest had sacrificed himself at that time. Therefore, the scapegoat was no longer needed. You see how these things fit? It's just beautiful when you see it like that. So now, obviously, what are the, what are the Jewish people doing during this time? Because there is no temple now. There's no sacrificial system. So what are they doing? After the temple was destroyed, Judaism was restructured into what we know as rabbinic Judaism, and they replaced the sacrifices of the temple with repentance, with prayer, um, fasting, and charity, and synagogue services, and all these things. I'm not disparaging any of them. However, they do not atone for sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That is the teaching of Leviticus and the teaching of the New Testament. So again, it's a time for the church to really be praying and interceding for the salvation of Israel. So let's move on to our last feast. Following this divine pattern, we've had repentance, trumpets. We've had redemption, atonement. And now what comes next? Rejoicing. And this brings us to the Feast of Tabernacles. So this feast would start five days after the Day of Atonement. And it's a real change of pace. You've had the most solemn time of the year where you've been forced to look at all the things you've done over the year and confess them to the Lord, bring them out into the open, And then you move into this time that is actually considered to be the most joyous festival of the year. You see how that works? Worst to best. We're dead in sin, we're alive to God. Once the atonement happens, once we accept the redemption, this is it. It's a seven-day feast now, and it's actually called the Feast of Rejoicing. In the book of Deuteronomy, it actually specifically commands you, you have to celebrate this feast with rejoicing. Now, you may think, how can you command rejoicing? Well, the rabbis used to teach, and I think it's an accurate thing, that was from the Holy Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. You know, we, we understand that. I think they were quite right on that. Let's read the text, Leviticus chapter 23. I think this will be the last big bit of text we're reading, but I want you to, to read these from, from the book of Leviticus themselves. On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths. 
so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. This is the final feast in the cycle of feasts for Israel. This is what we call a booth, a sukkot. Uh, this is a modern one. This is what they make. If you look in Israel now, that all families, they make these things and they have their meals in them throughout this week. And it's customary to invite people over. They're not allowed to do that this year, obviously. So it's probably not quite as joyful as it usually is. But this was the thing, you know. And there's even stories of the rabbis debating when they were in Auschwitz around this holiday time. Should we fast for the Day of Atonement? And how do we rejoice for the tabernacles? And a lot of them decided, even though they were being starved to death, they still had to fast for the Day of Atonement and rejoice for the Feast of Tabernacles. That's just how serious uh, they took these things. They were commanded to build these shelters. And this is really to remind them of their time in the wilderness wandering. And the point is that when they were in the wilderness wandering, they were completely dependent on God for everything. For food, for water, for life, for shelter, for protection. It's fellowship with God. You see, their tents were temporary. What was that time in the wilderness? It was their preparation time before they went into the promised land. It was a temporary tent as they were traveling towards a more permanent home. And that's a beautiful way to look at the Christian life. It is a temporary tent before we get those glorified bodies and then we dwell with God forever. Tabernacles is about dwelling with God. It's about fellowship with the Lord. That's why it comes after Yom Kippur because you're never going to have that fellowship unless you've understood the atonement that Christ made. And it points ultimately to the desire, the promise that God makes all throughout the Bible that his desire is to dwell with you too. This is not a God who is far off, a God who is distant, a God who wants to punish. This is a God who wants to dwell with his people in celebration and rejoicing. It points to, let me just read to you the scripture that I have here. I thought I had a slide of it. I don't. It's from Zechariah 2.10. It says, Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I'm coming and I will dwell in your midst. And that word dwell there, again, that associates it with tabernacles. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day, and I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The prophet Zechariah. It first, reali first realized, where did God first dwell? The tabernacle. He came to dwell in the Holy of Holies. He dwelt in the temple. This is where God would dwell. He came and obviously, ultimately, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It's no accident that in the prologue of John's gospel, when he is teaching about the deity of Jesus Christ, he uses tabernacle language. It says, and the word became flesh, and then what does it say? And he dwelt. The word is literally tabernacled among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the begotten father, full of grace and truth. It's no mistake, then, that Jesus would use this time, this festival time, to make one of the most outstanding proclamations of his identity and his message uh, in history. During the time of Christ, so during the first century in Jerusalem, this was one of the feasts that everyone had to come to by law. So thousands upon thousands of pilgrims would travel all over Israel. They would flock into Jerusalem. They'd be making these booths everywhere. Family would be reconnecting with each other. They would be singing. They would be dancing. There would be joyous times. There would be sacrifices going crazy all over the place. One of the things that they did at this time was they had this special ceremony. I've probably mentioned it to you before. It was called the water drawing ceremony, the libation ceremony. And it was a very joyous event filled with sort of pomp and pageantry. On the last day of this seven feast, they went over the top on this. And what they would happen is that one of the uh, a high priest, uh, not a high priest, a, a Levitical priest who was picked would make a march from the Temple Mount down to the Pool of Siloam. That's a freshwater pool, so they called that living water because 
everything, it's an agrarian culture, everything was about water that brings life. If you don't have water, you don't have crops, you don't have crops, you don't have life. That's the sort of mindset there. So it was all about giving thanks for the rain and the crops in one sense. It was also a tie because it was sort of coincided with the harvest time. But what they would do, as the sort of the priest is making this pompous sort of celebrationary procession, people would be following him. They'd be waving all these different branches of like the palm branch that we saw that you had to collect. They would have flutists and a choir following them. It was just a, an amazing event that would have been happening. And one of the things that would happen, he'd go down to the temple, he'd fill up his golden jug, he'd bring it back up to the temple and then he'd pour it upon the altar. And that would be the ceremony. And when he was pouring it on the altar, the choir would sing Psalm 118, verse 25. And listen to the words. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. I find this ironic in a quite a tragic way in many ways, but it says, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. That is what they sung. Now this, again, gives you some background to what is happening in the minds of the people. Do you remember when Jesus rode, we call it Palm Sunday, when he rode in to the king? They did this at the wrong time of year, but when the king comes, they cut down palm branches, they toss them in front of him, and then they said that one verse, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that's verse 26 of the same psalm. So it says, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. And then it goes on and says, Blessed is he who's, the name, who's coming in the name of the Lord. It's the same psalm. So you can see what the people were thinking. The king is here. The kingdom's about to start. Except they didn't realize atonement, Passover, had to come first. The timing was wrong for that sense. But that's the understanding to it. Now, the water-drawing ceremony was given a deeper meaning. The rabbis did associate water in a spiritual sense, the Holy Spirit with joy, the wells of salvation from Isaiah. You find it in many Jewish writings. They would even say in the Mishnah, it says, if you haven't seen the water libation ceremony, you haven't seen rejoicing in your life. That's, how, that's how, what an event this was. They were, if you haven't seen how great this festival is, there's nothing you've seen that's greater, basically. So this is the scene that is happening. They're following this priest up with this jug of living water that he's going to pour on the altar. The choir is shouting, save us, Lord. We beseech you, save us. And it is at that moment that a young itinerant rabbi from Nazareth, he stood up in front of thousands of people and he proclaimed himself as the answer to quench these thirsty souls. And he gave that famous declaration in John chapter 7. And look what it says. On the last day, the great day of the feast, that's tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. All on the backdrop of this elaborate water ceremony. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those believed in him were to receive, for the spirit was not yet given because he was not yet glorified. You see, for those who would drink and accept his message, they would get to live and dwell with Jesus in his coming kingdom, which is the fulfillment of tabernacles. You see, it was always associated with that period of time where God would rule. And this comes from the book of Zechariah. Zechariah 14, verse 16, again, speaking of the very final period of history, and it says, any who came against Jerusalem, summarizing here, those nations that survive, they will go from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. That's a feast that... Gentiles, I said, will one day, the nations will be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles when the king is ruling. That is the ultimate fulfillment of it. Jesus will be dwelling in Jerusalem with his people, those who have accepted his offer to have that living water in their lives, and the people will be gathered, they will celebrate with him, and it will be the best time of rejoicing that we know in this lifetime, or in this eternal world, basically. This concept is amazing. 
This is it. This is the fulfillment of everything that we're waiting for. And this concept doesn't just stretch into the millennial kingdom, it stretches right into the eternal state. Look at this last scripture. Second to last chapter in the entire Bible. This is it. This is the end of the book. What does it say? Notice the tabernacle language here. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them. They shall be his people and God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No longer any death, no longer any mourning, crying, pain. The first things have passed away. It's the Feast of Tabernacles there. This is what we have. The appointed times of the Lord take us through to eternity. And I believe we cannot fully really understand the Bible without understanding God's calendar there. They commemorate a light, an event in the past they speak of Jesus' ministry in the past, but also in the present, and they also look to his ministry in the future. Because one day we know the trumpet shall sound, God will gather his people towards him. They will gather his people, whether that's the rapture, whether that's the regathering of Israel at the end of time, there's debate about that, but one day the trumpet will sound. And then what does it say, though? The, full, the Day of Atonement. The salvation of Israel is fully realized and he will pour upon them that spirit of grace and supplication and they will mourn for him. Repentance. The trumpet, repentance. And then the apostle Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved. Salvation. And then they go and they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles as the prophet Zechariah said. And that is the beginning of the millennial kingdom. This is why the millennial kingdom is always said to start with a feast because it is the great feast and that is the fulfillment Repentance, redemption, rejoicing. And I would say that those three things should continually be in our hearts when we live in the world like it is right now because they are God's appointed times. They are our appointed times. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, just so much for the revelation that you've given us in Scripture. And Lord, I thank you for this prophetic outline. Lord, we do examine our hearts before you. And we thank you so much that your blood has covered all our sins. Thank you that we confess, Lord, and you're gracious to forgive. And we know and we can rejoice in that, Lord God. So we do give you thanks. I pray now for everyone here that we'd be able to have these things put deep into our heart, that we would have them impact our lives, Lord, um, in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theology and apologetics if you've been blessed by this podcast please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media for more resources please go to theologyandapologetics.com thanks for listening